Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. What are you willing to sacrifice? Those are two very loaded words, sacrifice and willing. The kingdom that Jesus Christ came into this world to initiate is in many ways antithetical to the kingdom of our culture and our values. Today we will again examine Philippians chapter 2, as Paul delivers a crucial component for each and every Christian who seeks to live after God's rule in God's kingdom. Thanks for listening. How many, how many of you have smartphones? All right, I, I got most of you on board with this then. Have, have you ever um, had like a, 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 a video chat on a smartphone, uh, either through Skype or maybe FaceTime? Uh, my family this week uh, went down to my in-laws in Ohio, which meant the most interaction I had with them was over the smartphone and, and talking to them and seeing them. And at one point, uh, Sadie, my four-year-old, just missed her daddy so much in tears, she had to call just to see me. Boy, I'll tell you, I love that. I, love that. I, I find, though, that I have a strange inclination uh, that I don't believe comes from God. I'm pretty sure it comes from myself when I'm talking on the smartphone. So if you've ever done this, you'll, you'll know that when you chat on a video call, you'll see in the main picture whoever it is you're talking to. But up in the corner, what's up in the corner? It's a little picture of yourself. And I find, for whatever narcissistic reason, I end up looking at myself <laughs> rather than the person I should be looking. Is anybody else with me there? You know, they do this. That's very bizarre. I, I, have, I have no reason to pay attention to my own picture. I should be looking at whoever it is I'm speaking to. That's the whole reason the technology exists. Um, I, I fear, however, that this is simply a product of my nature, that woven into my DNA is a desire to love who? Myself. Maybe for you it isn't a, a smartphone app. Maybe for you it's a mirror. Uh, or, or it's a comparison with those around you because you are loving self. And so who has uh, the bigger house, the nicer car, and the most expensive clothes? Or, or maybe for youpers, the fullest garage, the biggest buck, um, nicest snow tires? I don't know. <laughs> Right, we, we use the phrase keeping up with the Joneses, but uh, for those of you who know Marvin, he and his wife Mary, they're in California, um, uh, they're, they're sweet members that we have here. Uh, his mom, Marvin's mommy, had a good saying, right? Because when you look at yourself, it's about the nastiest thing you could do, because self-love stinks. Can you say that with me? Self-love stinks. She was right. And Marvin was here, he'd give out a hearty Amen. Uh, we live in a, a selfie world. That's the world we live in. And, and for some of us, rather than the blatant idolatry of just loving ourselves more than God, we've really put false uh, or put makeup on these false gods of ourselves, making them more palatable to the world that we live in. Uh, like the petulant witch in the story, we say without words, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the... Or, or fill in the blank for whatever it is you want to be, right, of them all. And I, I truly believe this is, it's something that's woven into our DNA. Um, if you've had children, um, how long did you have to train them to say the word mine? 
Do you, have to, do you have to work on that with them? Do you have to pull them aside? Now you need to say mine. Go ahead, say it with me. Say mine. No, they just know this. They just learn this. It's part of their DNA. Or how about no? Uh, they're, they're good on that one too. Uh, for, from a very young age, and it's something that continues to be reinforced by our culture and our world today, you live in a selfie world where we pay attention to the reflection in the mirror and our own gaze, our own uh, faces, that which we would gain benefit from become the top priority of our perspective. Um, this morning, we need to change our perspective. It, it, uh, if you don't know this uh, for our youth, uh, you can see it very quickly uh, to our children today. That, that We have really propagated a world that allows for this and reinforces this. I've entitled this message, The Perspective of God's people. And we're going to continue in the book of Philippians. We're going to really be hovering around a few verses uh, that we've been in over the last couple of days. Uh, Philippians 2, if you have your Bibles, please take them out and turn there with me. That's page 1827 in the pew Bibles, in the, in the pew in front of you. Uh, one of the reasons why we're spending a, a little extended time on this uh, passage in chapter 2 is really because this is kind of the crux of the letter. As Paul has worked to helping the church in Philippi reframe their thinking, uh, that they would think not worldly, but they think after the way God does, he says to them, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Remember that? He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What happened to him? Where is he writing from? He's in, he's in prison. He says, that's actually been a good thing for the gospel. The end of chapter 1 saying, it's been granted unto you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, because we're all on board with that, right? Ah, I believe in him, but he says, but also to suffer for him. I don't know how ready I am for that, but you see, we have to change how we think. And this brings us into chapter two. As we've looked at before, he says, if you have any comfort, therefore, from being with God, united with Christ, fellowship with the spirit, comfort from his love, tenderness and compassion, he says, then make my joy complete. That, that was a euphemistic way of saying then, let, let me be so proud of you for what you have come to hold, to believe and to live by in Christ. Let my joy overflow in that you would be reconciled one to another and that you'll have the same mind with one another, be of the same love, have the same spirit and be one in spirit and one in purpose. That, that, that's here our beginning portion of chapter 2. He helps us to see how to do that. And so that's where we're going to look this morning. We're really going to pick up the story in um, verse 5 through 11. Now, <clears throat> there are, I've preached this many times, and, and there are some very deep theological truths to this. But I thought being the last message of the year, I'd go a little lighter this morning. Any amens on that? Or are you like, no, no. Yeah. So you, you'll find the theological depth is still there, but uh, th- there's something that's sitting right on the surface that we can't miss. Um, it, it's no good for us to go deep if we miss the message that's right in front of us. And for that, I've only got two observations and two conclusions. It's, it's going to be pretty simple this morning. And so I hope that as we read through this, uh, you, you devote the time that we have here to listen to the God's Spirit Speak to us through God's word. I'm going to read through it now. Verse 5 says this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. 
taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It, it, it's a beautiful passage, and one that we recognize the early church held in high significance, speaking both to the nature of Christ and our response in how we follow him. I have two observations for you. The first is this. Jesus practiced sacrifice. He demonstrates this for us. And so when Paul says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, this is where we need to begin. To sacrifice means to give up something valuable, to give up something that you and I would love, you and I would like, you and I would rather have it go our way. I wonder if we could give a little bit of reflection to that as to what you and I are really willing to sacrifice in our life. I can tell you one of the things that's hardest for me to sacrifice is uh, green lights, uh, traffic lights. I'm, I'm really a terrible person when I drive. Um, I don't cut people off, but if I can make it through a yellow light, I want to make it through a yellow light. And um, the other day, as the, um, the, kind of, the snow was falling, I could see there was a semi-truck that just couldn't pull out because of the traffic going by. And me being the good Christian that I am, pressed the brake. And and waved him out. And I missed the light, turned red, and I had to sit there for 30 seconds. (laughs) Can you believe it? Um, Not only that, but um, I am so very sacrificial that instead of watching the movies I would like to watch with my wife over uh, the holidays, I watched a Hallmark movie. Don't worry, I'm seeing doctors. They say I'll be okay. So it'll be all right. I'm going to get over it. Think, think of the things that we're really willing to sacrifice. And for some of us, it's, pretty, it's actually pretty small, but sometimes we think it's big. Um, having to travel to help somebody gives up, what, a couple gallons of gas? Maybe you gave up an hour of your time. Maybe you gave up a full afternoon. Though those things are valuable to us, You and I first have to see them in light of what Jesus was willing to sacrifice. Look again with me in verse 6. He says, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. When I was real small, like kindergarten age, we would play this game as to whose dad was better than your dad, and my dad's better than your dad, and well, my dad's a firefighter, and well, my dad's a doctor. Now, which of those two? Eh, yeah. Or, or maybe my dad was a plumber, and, and no, my dad's better. He's a candy store owner. Totally better, right? <laughs> now, now what, what if your answer was God, right? My, my dad is a farmer. Well, my dad's God. What could beat God? There's nothing you could say that would be higher than that. God is the highest there is. There's nothing greater. There's nothing that anybody would have or could say in terms of a title for themselves, but to be who? But to be God. 
I, I want you to know that whatever it is that you have that's valuable, that's hard for you to give up, it's still piddlings compared to what Jesus was willing to give up. Now, I, I want to make sure that I am clear on this, and this is just to tip, dip our toe into the theological depths of this, that as Jesus came in the incarnation as fully man, what he gave up was not his deity. He's still fully God. Say amen if you got that. Amen. All right, what he gave up was the privileges of remaining removed from our mess and the comforts that God would enjoy in heaven. As he comes to earth, he's still fully God, but I want you to look in verse 7. When it says he made himself nothing, it does so by giving us the next verb. What's your Bible say there? How did he make himself nothing? By what? Taking. Does everybody see that? He doesn't make himself nothing by removing. So he doesn't cease to be God. Rather, he adds humanity to his deity. He sacrificed for you. He sacrificed for me. The second thing uh, that Jesus does here is your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus is that he does so willingly. Jesus sacrifices that which is highest above all things. Equality with God and the benefits that come therein. And he does so willingly. Did you see in verse 7, he says, but made himself nothing. This is not something that was done to him. This was not something um, that he was coerced into. Uh, Jesus went this way upon his own will. To do it willingly means to act upon one's own accord. I want to make sure you recognize the preposition here is not for one's own accord. That'd be very selfish. I'm doing this for me. That's not why Jesus did it. He did it for you. Um, Turn to your neighbor. Say he did it for you. Jesus did it for you. And he did so willingly. Uh, I don't know if it was in Reader's Digest or in um, Chicken Soup for the Soul, but here's a story I want to share with you. Many years ago, uh, when I worked as a volunteer at Stanford Hospital, I got to know a little girl named Lisa who was suffering from a rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother who had miraculously survived the same disease and had developed the antibodies needed to combat the illness. The doctor explained the situation to her little brother and asked the boy if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. I saw him hesitate for only a moment before taking a deep breath and saying, yes, I'll do that if it will save Lisa. As the transfusion progressed, he lay in a bed next to his sister and smiled, as we all did, seeing the color returning to her cheeks. And then his face grew pale and his smile faded. He looked up at the doctor and asked with a trembling voice, will I start to die right away? Being young, The boy had misunderstood the doctor. He thought he was going to have to give all his blood. I don't know how true that is or not, but it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Somebody who is willing, willing to give for the sake of another. This is how much God loves you. This is what he has done for you. 
If you look in your text in verse 7, you'll see three spheres that get changed as Jesus willingly comes to our earth and comes into our mess. First, it says that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Uh, The Greek word here could also rightly be translated as as a slave. I want you to see here that for Jesus, there is a new form in which he is seen in. And it's not the king as he should be, for he has a new profession. He is now a slave. He's a slave. We read the companion text on Christmas Eve, but here it is on a Matthew's gospel. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Willingly, Jesus came with a new profession. He is now a slave. Uh, The second thing that I want you to see in this text is that he is being found in the appearance as a man. Um, I, I want you to know that God required such payment from men that when you sin, you will... Do you remember what he said in the garden? The day that you eat of it, you will die. That, that, that was the payment that needed to be given. Now, now that, that could be paid by angels, and we know through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that the blood of animals is in lasting. You, you could get ritually pure before God by sacrificing a lamb, but you know what? That lamb's blood only lasts for a short time, and then what do you need to do? All over again. The payment was uh, the blood of humankind. This is what Paul means when he says that he's found in the appearance as a man. Because outwardly, on the surface, Jesus is fully human. Inwardly, his will is even a human will. However, it's a little bit different than you and I. For there is some part of our nature that has been corrupted. You see, Jesus was fully man, yet without something. Do you know what Jesus didn't have that you have? Go ahead, say it again loud. That's right. Jesus had no sin. Can you think of another human who didn't have any sin? There's actually two. Adam and... That's right. There was a time where humans had no sin. And so this was a possibility for mankind to live in righteousness and holiness with God. But every one of the descendants that comes from Adam and Eve, we carry the sin gene with us. And we sin because that's what we are. We are sinners. The book of Hebrews, the writer says, because the children... It's us. Have flesh and blood. He too had to be made with flesh and blood that he might share in our likeness. And so Jesus not only has a new profession as a servant, he now has a new presentation coming to earth in the appearance of a man. The last thing I want you to see in that passage in verse 7 is that he was made in human likeness. Fully human. And so Jesus now has a new position, a new profession, a new presentation, and a new position. So what do we do with this? If you're on board with me that that's what this means, that Jesus was, he sacrificed, which is to give up that which is valuable. And he did so willingly. Um, I'm thankful for Angie's challenge to the children that uh, new, new years mean new resolutions, right? And I, I want to challenge you here with this first conclusion that Jesus willingly gave up everything. Jesus willingly gave up everything. If you look at the text in verse 8, it says, He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, 
Even death on a what? On a cross. Not only giving up all of the benefits that you and I enjoy by simply being human. Not only giving up all of the benefits that God would have by being um, transcendent and outside of our mess. But when it came time for Jesus to give up his life, he gave it up in the most gruesome way ever conceived by man. Crucifixion is the worst possible kind of death. There, there is no accusation that could be ever leveled against God that he doesn't know what it means to suffer. Jesus suffered for you. He gave it all up and he gave it up willingly. However, there's actually somebody who gave up more than Jesus. It's easy to miss in this text. And, and part of the reason is if you're reading out of the New International Version, I think the translation could have been done a little bit better. And so I want to draw you back to verse 8 one more time because the person who actually gave up more than Jesus gave up is the Father. The Father gave up Jesus for you. I'm, I'm just going to tell you straight up, that ain't a fair trade. Right? When you had um, the yogurt at lunch for celery sticks and you traded with your friend... For celery sticks, that ain't a fair trade. Unless you really like celery sticks, right? I want you to know this is far greater a mistrade. The father gave up his son for you. Verse 8, it says that he became obedient, and your Bible might say, to death. Uh, That may lead you along the wrong idea. It's not that death came to Jesus knocking and said, All right, dude, it's time. Let's go. I'm going to have my way over you. That's not the way it worked. Jesus was not obedient to death. We're on the same page with that? Uh, Death holds no power over Jesus. No power. In fact, I included in your sermon notes the passage, and I've even bolded the word there in the Gospels where he says, no one takes my life from me. Now, you and I can't say that, right? I mean, death pretty much owns us, right? But not so with Jesus. Jesus was not obedient to death. Your your Bible should rather read, became obedient onto death. You you might, if you're in the habit of making notes in in your margin Bible, scratch that little word, onto death. Because the obedience that Jesus shows is not obedience to death, but obedience to who? Obedience to the Father. Because it's the Father who actually is giving up more. I want you to see this, if I can make this argument a little bit from the Old and New Testament. The book of Isaiah says these words, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. In the book of Acts, Luke records this, Fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Whose idea was this whole thing? It was God the Father's idea. A a few other passages. I want to make sure that we're solid on this truth. Acts 4. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did... What your power and will had decided beforehand. 
should happen. And even in the book of Revelation, the lamb who was slain, some Bibles render this, before the creation of the world. The NIV here says, from the creation of the world. So before all this spun up into place, God had foreknown and planned and purposed. It was his will to have his own son crushed and suffered. For who? It's for us. Jesus gave up everything. He gave it all up. But the father actually gave up more because he gave up Jesus for you and for me. So what do we do with this? In a world where we live in a selfie, uh, selfie generation, um, number one, we need to le- learn to look away from ourselves. You need to learn to look away from yourself. And the little front-facing camera on your phone will not help you do that. Paul says in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Verse 4 says, each of you should look not only to your own interests. So the second thing we need to do after we look away from self is we need to look to others. If I were to finish verse 3, it says you need to consider others better than yourself. The end of verse 4 says, but look also to the interests of others. You're going to find that that's easier to do with people you like. Bible says, what good is that to you? If you love those who love you, even the pagans do that. If you give to those who can give back to you, even the pagans do that. If you forgive those who forgive you, on and on and on. You get the point? So this is easy to do to people we love. It's also easy to do for people who we can see right in front of us. Do you know that God loves people who are really severely hurting today in in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, in North Korea, in the Philippines, in Indonesia? Do you know that God has children just waiting to turn to him? And he needs people to go tell him the good news. Yeah, I got, I got a mortgage payment though. You know, the car payment's due. And you know, we just put a new addition on. And the RV payment's coming in. And that's a lot to give up. And so who's going to go? You, you and I, we don't all go. But there are some who do. As we go into 2019, we need to change our perspective. Stop looking at who? Stop looking at ourselves. Start looking at who? Others. Others. You're, you're going to have people right in your own vicinity who you can look at. I want to challenge you to look beyond that even. There are more people who you can look for to help. But the last thing is how to do that. I get that, Pastor. I understand this is what I want to do. How do I do it? And here it is. You need to look at Christ. And that was our verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that is Christ Jesus. Uh, He sacrificed for you, church. He did it willingly for you, church. Didn't have to ask him. Didn't have to pass the plate, right? Jesus was ready to go. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. As you and I live in a selfie world, we need to know that looking at Jesus is the way to do this. If you want to get from here to Iron Mountain, you better go to the BP first and fill up your gas tank. Because you're not going to have any ability to get to where you need to go. And if number one and two are where we need to go, number three is the gasoline that will get you there. When you and I stop looking at ourselves, when you and I even stop looking at the other versions of self-help in our world, if you just look to Christ with Him as your Lord, I promise you this, number one and number two are going to flow. They're going to flow from you naturally effortlessly, 
desirously you will want to do those things because you're doing number three. You heard our reading today from Peggy. I want to remind you one last time, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, I didn't even get into the end of Philippians 2, right? Because if you follow verse 9, 10, and 11, uh, this doxological elevation of Jesus. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's it say right after that? To the, to the glory of God the Father. That's right. Because it's the Father who gave up all these things. And so here's what we see. Jesus, if you fix your eyes on him, he's the pioneer, the perfecter, the author, and the finisher of your faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What's that mean? Endured the cross. That's suffering. But what has Paul just done told us in chapter 1? He's in jail doing what? Playing pinochle? <laughs> suffering. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And it's been granted unto you on behalf of Christ, not only believe, but also to suffer for him. So Jesus was willing to suffer in this life, scorning shame. And what's the result of that? What happened? Therefore, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You, you, you may suffer slings and arrows in this world. Sticks and stones and, wor- and words, you, you, you may. I want to promise you this. Everything that you sacrifice for Christ on this side of eternity will be rewarded to you a hundredfold. And that ain't my word. That's his word. So if you believe it, this is, no, this is not a downer sermon. Jeez, oh, I'm sorry I came to church. This, this is a promise, if you believe this, that God will restore all these things that you and I be willing to give up on this side for the sake of Christ. I, I, I'm, I'm wrapping it up right now. I, I shared with you the passage already out of Matthew, right? The Son of Man did not come to serve, or did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I didn't share with you the verses before that. And just on this topic of suffering, I want to remind you one last time the words of Jesus. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you. Right? Like the selfie pictures. I'm posting that on Instagram. That's going on Facebook. Right? Whoever wants to be great among you, what does he say? Must be your servant. What was Jesus' new profession? He was a slave. He was a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Look to Christ, church. Stop looking at yourself. Look at others and look to Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we're so thankful for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you have brought us through 2018. I, I just want to pause before you and allow this last meditation upon your word in this year. Be that which would springboard us into a resolution of 2019. Where we would be willing to follow your son wherever it leads. And we confess here immediately that we are rich in this world, I pray, God, that you will help us to be richer in Christ Jesus. I pray that you will help us to see 
the things that rust and corrupt and can be stolen as less valuable and that our greatest love will be found in the treasure that is preserved for us in heaven, a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. If anyone is here and they have not called upon the name of the King of Kings, God, we see from your word today that there will come a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Our prayer, God, is that you would convict their hearts that that day for them would be today, that they would bend the knee before King Jesus, that they would confess upon their lips they're in need of a Savior and find your loving embrace all satisfying beyond anything that this world could offer. Help us do this. Help us in 2019. We pray this in Jesus' name with all God's people saying. Our hymn of the day is found in your green hymnals. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Number 361.